yeah, I think I'm ready. Morning, everyone. Hello. Uh, so, if there was one line from one song that I could uh, urge you to remember from this morning, it is that there were walls between us, but by the cross, Jesus came and broke them down. So however confusing and Old Testament-y today's preach gets, if you just remember the line from that song, you pretty much got the summary of the preach anyway, so um, that's not your cue to leave at the back. (laughs) So with that warning, we are going to start by taking a trip back into the Old Testament uh, and the Old Covenant and taking a few sort of thousand years of religious history in about a couple of hundred words. So kind of buckle up, I think is what I'm saying. Uh, The passage that we're reading today is, so it's Hebrews 9 all the way through, and a little bit of 10. I have got it up on my slides. I'm not going to turn around and look. An act of pure faith. I believe it will be behind me at the right time. So I'm just going to start by praying, and then I'll read some of the passage. Don't worry, I won't read it all at once, otherwise we would would literally be here all day. Um, So... Father God, I want to thank you for your presence with us in worship. Lord, I thank you that there were walls between us, but by the cross you came and broke them down. Lord, we know that we stand, we sit, we listen today completely holy in your sight, completely pure, completely clean. Lord, with no more barriers and no more distance between us. And I thank you that that is the work of your son, Jesus Christ, that you welcome us to participate in and share in today. Amen. So, I'm going to read this out. Uh, So, now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary, so a temple. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room, there were... The lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread, this was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the atonement altar. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now, Paul says, which, you know, believe me, I I, I was aware of that as I was writing the preach. So when everything had been arranged just like that, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed, as long as the first tabernacle, the first temple, was still functioning. This is an illustration of the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of a new order. And breathe. 
So if you've read the Old Testament for any length of time, you very quickly come up with two apparently contradictory ideas about God. So the first idea is that God is loving, that he loves people and he wants to be in relationship with us. He made us with the intention of being near to us. He wants to be involved in our daily lives, hear our prayers, to be our friend and to love us and be loved in return. To quote Baz Luhrmann's great movie, Moulin Rouge. The second idea, not on the slide, um, the second idea, right, is that God is holy and that he cannot be near those who are unclean. So God is completely just and ultimately will ensure that no injustice goes unpunished. He's so pure that impurity cannot dwell with him. He's so perfect that even our smallest mistake, our smallest transgression should bar us from his presence. And as we've heard in that passage, the Old Testament establishes a host of rules to try and bridge the gap between those ideas about God. Um, It's almost bewildering, right? There are curtains and rooms and consecrated items and religious artifacts and rituals on rituals. And the question I suppose we're probably left with as we read that passage is what on earth is all that meant to mean? The laws seem to be set up on the one hand, to draw people near to God. They say, I've made a way, come close. But on the other hand, they seem to push us away, say, not not through that curtain, and definitely not through the other curtain, and if you go there, you'd better watch out. Seems like it keeps us away. So there's layers upon layers of curtains and barriers were there before anyone could get into the presence of God. And most people would never enter the inner holy place of the temple where the worship was actually conducted. You know, we are here today, we we worship God and we take it for granted, but 2,000 years ago, Steve would be in the back room with the kids, I guess, (laughs) and we would all just be standing outside hoping that when Steve went into the back room that I guess the kids didn't didn't murder him? I don't don't know. The metaphor falls apart a little bit, to be honest. But... um. When they were doing that, when the priest went there, um, what they would do is just undertake that work, the daily work of offering sacrifices for sin, not enjoying the presence of God, but in fear, offering, saying, God, we know that we've done something wrong and we need, we need to make atonement. And further than that, you know, the inner sanctum, and on that one day, the high priest would go in and he would need to be cleansed himself with blood to enter in. The whole thing seems kind of uninviting, a little bit otherworldly. There's that ever-present sense of danger that we're going somewhere that we really shouldn't be. And that if we make a mistake, we might face God's anger and God's judgment. But at the same time, the passage talks about some other things. What's inside that unapproachable holy sanctuary. So there's the Ark of the Covenant. It's a symbol of God's faithfulness and grace to his people. There is the Staff of Aaron, which speaks of God giving a mediator between God and humanity. 
There's the manna, which God used to feed his people in the desert when they were um, helpless and rebellious, a symbol of God's provision and patience. Then there's the stone tablets given to God at, at Mount Sinai with the commandments written on, and these a sign that God longs to speak to his people and to shepherd them. And of course, at the heart of this all is the sanctuary itself. There was the presence of God and ultimately the means of receiving our forgiveness. So how are we meant to understand all of this? It's a bit like setting up a soup kitchen in a bank vault. We're sort of welcome, but unwelcome. We should come in, but we can't stay away. Um, we need forgiveness, but we aren't clean enough to come to the source. And the writer of Hebrews makes it clear, this is the point. We can't make sense of the metaphor of the temple by trying to take it literally. And he lays down some, some really devastating truths. The sacrifices couldn't make us clean. They're just the blood of animals. We all know that the blood of animals can't make us clean. What would, how would that work? You know, how can the blood of animals pay for our lust, our jealousy, our pride, our greed, our anger? And worse than that, the priests, they're just sinful men. They're just, just like you and I. They're no different from us. Why do they get to go into the temple but we don't? They're no different. And the earthly temple itself, worst of all, it's just a copy. It's not the real deal. Who can build a building on earth out of stones and gold that's fit for the real presence of God to dwell in? It's sort of obviously ridiculous when you think about it logically. And actually, I think that sort of makes sense to us as a modern audience, right? We, we don't do very many blood sacrifices at work when we want to go into the presence of our boss. You know, it's easy for us to... Uh, I'm a civil... I don't know what it's like in the private sector. Maybe you do. Um, so it's easy for us to kind of sit here and see the rituals and sacrifices are not the solution. But the truth is they do speak of a real problem that is no less relevant today. And that's what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, this is a picture for today, for now. The truth is these rituals should mean that there is no way for us ever to enter the presence of God. They should mean we should never be able to have a clean conscience. They should mean that we are destined for judgment, just judgment, and then destruction, because we have rebelled against um, God, the highest moral authority in the universe. It's really important that we understand the futility of trying to take the law as a means of our salvation. Because as long as we try to remake that sacrificial system in our hearts, we are forcing ourselves outside of God's presence. We're not in the inner, inner sanctum, we're pushed out. And then we're pushed out again, and soon we find ourselves standing outside having tried to force our way in with the law. We need to dwell on this today. And this is the first point, right? There were walls between us. Because other than treating sin as if it doesn't have any consequences or meaning to God, the 
the greatest offense that we can commit to the gospel is the idea that we can somehow add to what Jesus has already accomplished. And it seems harmless at first. It even seems like it might be kind of a biblical idea. So we all know, right, faith without works is dead. We all know that if you have encountered the grace of God, that it changes you so fundamentally that you can never be the same ever again. So there's a little kernel of truth in there, isn't there, that's very tempting. Perhaps we do need to add something to, to what Christ has done just to top it up and show that we're the real deal. But that isn't the point of these metaphors, right? So the temple is not encouraging you to look at your life for signs of grace and try and fill the gaps. Or look at your life and go, I, I need to add some religious observances to my day to make sure that I'm close to God. The old works of the temple are meant to help us see if our lives are full of religion and dead works. And as I wrote that, the thing I wanted to do the most was defend my favorite works. I wanted to say, well, of course this doesn't mean your prayer life. It doesn't mean reading the Bible. It definitely doesn't mean when you invite your friends to church. It isn't about any of those good things. You should definitely do all those things. Look at me wagging my finger at you, telling to be a better evangelist. You know, I should tell you that there are some sacred duties. You know, in some ways, but for the gospel, it's the dream message of every pastor. You go, if you really want to be a Christian, you've, you've got to give more money to the church. The pastor has to drive around in a gold Mercedes-Benz, and that's how you can know you're saved. But the truth is, there are no sacred duties anymore. Even pursuing justice for the vulnerable, which is the heart of God for the world, even being merciful to the poor, even the act of worshipping God itself. There is a proud religious person inside of me that wants to tell you to earn your salvation. But the truth this passage will not let us escape is that that is not the case, and it cannot ever be the case. I'm going to read a bit more of Hebrews now. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, it is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who were ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? The question of the passage is this. If that temple, which was established by God, the plans are in the Old Testament, with religious practices designed by God is not enough, 
then how can the things established by us, by men and women, be enough? They can never be. If we are trying to win our justification through the things that we do, then we can never do so. And it is way worse than that, because by trying to do that, we're cutting ourselves off, the passage says, from the only person who can make us righteous and clean. We need a righteousness apart from the law, and there is no earthly obedience which is sufficient. If we rebuild that sacrificial system in our hearts and lives, then we are rejecting our hope, which is that God will replace that system of dead works with his love and mercy. I'm dwelling on this because I want the enormity of it to sink in. If we rebuild the law in our lives, then Christ is of no use to us. The Bible uses those exact words of no use to us. He cannot save us. Is that a bit shocking? All of the sin in the world, all of the sin, anything you can think of doing this morning can never put you beyond the reach of God's kindness. It can never put you beyond the reach of his grace. Whatever you have done, whatever you will do, never beyond his grace. But trying to earn God's love creates a chasm that no one can cross. Not even Jesus can cross the chasm if we rebuild the law in our lives. It says, of no use. Jesus says it this way, no one can come to the Father except through me. There's no hope in that way of thinking, right? We know God won't accept us on the base of our works, even if we pick the best ones, the ones that we're really good at the ones that we like and make us look good in front of other men and women. So it seems, after all of that preaching, we've kind of got back to where we started, which is, there is a wall between us. We have an impossible dilemma. There's an unscalable wall, an unbreachable cabin, and there is nothing we can do. We need to come to God to receive forgiveness, but we are barred from his presence, apparently condemned and without hope. Even the works of the law that God set up are not enough. Even the temple is made unclean by our presence. It's like we're adrift at sea. In a lifeboat with no oars and no sight of land, our attempts to paddle are never going to cut it. So the question is, what is enough? What can break down that wall? What can breach that chasm? Let's read a bit more Hebrews. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll on all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled With the blood, both the tabernacle and everything used in the ceremonies, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands, that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, 
now to appear for us in God's presence. What we need is a better temple, which is not made of earthly materials, and we need a better priest who is not tainted by sin, and we need a better sacrifice which has the power to truly cleanse us of our sin. What this passage says so clearly and emphatically is that Jesus is the only answer. Jesus is the one who bridges the gap between God's holiness and God's love. Jesus is the one who unites justice and mercy. Jesus is our only hope. What is a temple meant to be other than a place where God and men meet? We know that earthly temples can't really contain the presence of God. But the truth is, we've read, that temple was only ever meant to be a copy of a temple in heaven. Now, when you read that, my first thought was, I don't know if this is really good news, because it solves one of the problems. One of the problems is, the temples made by men cannot contain the presence of God. Well, great, we've got a heavenly temple now that is fit to contain the presence of God. Unfortunately, it seems to make the other problem a whole lot worse. Because if I'm not allowed in the earthly temple, I'm pretty sure I'm not allowed in the heavenly temple either. And yet there is a glimmer of hope in that, isn't there? Because if we could gain access to that heavenly temple, then we would know that we were in the presence of God. Truly in the presence of God, where God could really forgive us. And we would truly be in the presence of the one who can clean us. Now, in the earthly temple, Hebrews says, the way that hope was indicated was by the cleansing of the temple, by the blood of animals. Everything was sprinkled with blood. Even the altar was ceremonially clean. And through those sacrifices and sprinkling, it seemed that a way was made between man and God. But it feels so tenuous, like walking along a knife edge. We need a different kind of sacrifice in that heavenly temple. That is what Jesus has accomplished for you. Jesus was able to enter into the true temple in heaven. And he is both the perfect sacrifice and the perfect priest. It is through his perfect sacrifice on a cross and the blood that he shed that we are able to be welcomed into the presence of God into the presence of God where we can receive that forgiveness and we can receive that cleansing that we need. And unlike those animal sacrifices, which had to be repeated over and over and over again, the sacrifice of Christ is perfect and forever. This is so important for us to hear if we are struggling to believe that we are made perfectly and permanently righteous by Christ. How futile were those old temple sacrifices? How pointless the sacrificial system? Well, the blood of Jesus is as powerful as they were powerless. Even as those sacrifices had to be repeated over and over, his will never need to be repeated. We cannot add to it. There is nothing that we could ever do to add to it because it's done. The sacrifice has been made. It's not being made again. All of that dead repetition is dead forever. It's gone forever. No more repetition. No more dead works. No more sacrificial system. It is over. Jesus died on a cross in your place 
for your sin and now the power of works and sacrifices is over. Today, you all are made perfectly and permanently clean by Jesus. And if you are clean, made clean by him, then you are really, really clean. If you are set free by him, then you are really free. If you are welcomed into the presence of God, then you are really, really welcomed into the presence of God. If works are over, they're really, really over. That is why the passage says, your redemption is eternal. Because it's eternal. Because it doesn't end and it doesn't wane. It's, it's done. I'm just going to read a bit. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again. The way that the high priest enters the most holy place every year with a blood that is not his own. That's what we were talking about. Otherwise, Christ would have to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. To do away with sin. Do you hear that? Your sin is done away with this morning. It is done away with. Over. Just as people are destined to die once, after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. You hear that? Are you waiting for Jesus this morning? Because when he comes back, it's not to bear sin again, it's to bring your salvation with him. And look, if we shouldn't try and replace the old sacrificial system, right, with our works, heaven forbid we should try and replace the sacrifice of Christ with our works. You know, we know that sacrifices are repeated, that our works are repeated. When you get up every morning, the Bible is there to be read. The prayers are there to be said. The poor are there to be loved. We repeat them. But if we try to make those things the way of our salvation, they can't be effective. We know that however much blood is spilled, however well we behave, that our sin will come back and back again. And so what I'm calling you to today, and why we're talking about this still, is to resist with every fiber of your being the temptation to go back to those dead works and rely on your own righteousness. Because Christ has come to break down those walls. Did you notice in the passage that Jesus' sacrifice in the temple is made through the Holy Spirit and to the Father? When Jesus paid the ransom for our lives, it wasn't purely his own mission, but it was one that was dreamed up in the whole heart of God ages ago, before creation even began, before even one human being was on the earth. It is not the case then that a, a loving son protests against the angry, un, you know, the angry just father for us. He's not wrestling with an unwilling spirit, but the whole of God in unity agreed a plan to rescue you and to redeem you. So when this passage says that Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, we really need to take that very seriously. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. 
that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. That means that however much you have sinned, however much you have fallen short, however weak you feel, however low you think you have sunk, that Christ is your constant advocate. As the song says, he ever lives and pleads for me. And he is not pleading with an uncaring father who prefers to condemn, but with a loving father who delights in our rescue. And how does he mediate for us? Does he point to us and go, actually, three days out of five this week, Mike read the Bible, so go on, Father, forgive him. Does he tell God to check? No, not at all. The son says, look at me, Father, not at Mike. Does he ask God to look at our charity or our mercy? No, those are the old ways. He says, look at my death, Father, not at them. Moment by moment, sin by sin, Jesus is the mediator of our salvation. He is the priest who brings us into the presence of God where we couldn't dare to dream to be. And at every moment as he ushers us in, as he walks us into the presence of God, he's saying to the Father, look at me. Look at the righteousness that I have given to them. Look at the death that I died for them. Look at me, my Father, and draw them close. And you know how the father responds? Does he try and step to one side and look past Jesus and check if we really deserve it? No. Not even for a single second does the father do that. There is no disunity between the father and the son and the spirit. When Jesus Christ advocates for us as our priest and our sacrifice, the father is delighted to listen to his son. And look at the righteousness of Christ instead of our own. And his sacrifice instead of our sin. I want that to sink in. When you sin, Jesus is delighted to advocate to the Father for you and say, look at my righteousness, look at my sacrifice. And the Father is delighted to hear it. He says, yes, my son, you've died for them. I look on your sacrifice, I look on your perfect life, and I love them, and I redeem them, and I forgive them. Hmm? He delights in it. His advocacy is constant. I want to stress that God is not surprised when we sin. Jesus is not surprised when we sin. When he died on the cross, it wasn't only for the sins that you've committed up to now in your life, thinking they'll probably be perfect after that. Have you ever woken up the morning after a bad day and thought, I'm going to start now, I'm really going to get into my holiness? God wasn't surprised. He saw that from before the beginning of time. He saw that you would sin and he saw that you would repent and he knew. He knew that you would fail. The the sacrifice of Christ is not invalidated when you sin or when you fail. When God calls you to receive mercy day by day, it's not because you gradually become less forgiven over time. It's not because he forgets that his son died for you. And it's not because the righteousness of Christ is like a thin layer of paint on your life with chips off when you get things wrong. Christ's sacrifice is really done. It is finished, right? 
That's what the word says. That's what Christ says when he dies on the cross. Before this passage was written, he says, it is finished. The works are finished. The repetition is finished. That dead old way is finished and a new way has come. If in him you have a righteousness which is not from works. He sat down, it says, at the right hand of the Father. So I'm going to finish just by reading a little bit of Scripture, a little bit in Hebrews 10. We didn't get to Hebrews 10. We're going to read a bit of it. Um, We're going to worship, and we're going to take communion. Let me read this. By one sacrifice, he has made forever perfect those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my law in their hearts and I will write it on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Why don't we just uh, stand for a moment?